Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for, for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. This is only the seventh time we start the recording of this episode. So I think seven times a charm. Is that how the saying goes? That's it, right? Like, we basically are always like, oh, we never have research fails to share because we never fail. (laughs) (laughs) We jinxed ourselves. We're like, we didn't have a failure for this one. And then we're like, wait, as it turns out, we'll just, we manifested one for ourselves. We actually have seven of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. (laughs) We had a really fantastic conversation with Dr. Sarah Schultz on this episode. She's the professor and chair of kinesiology at Seattle University. And she taught us about her work on exploring new ways to get obese children exercising, improving physical activity in women and those with osteoarthritis, and then also shares her passion and enthusiasm for diversifying research teams, populations, and the questions that we're asking. And we think you will really enjoy this episode. I know that we did. Yes. And before we jump right in, we're going to do a bit of boom. 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 All right. So for t- today's bit of boom, I put in all caps, groundbreaking research. Mm, that's when you know it's good. <laughs> it's important. I saw this on actually a friend sent this tweet to me about this nature paper that comes from the Glancy Lab. And the title is The Unified Myofibrillar Matrix for Force Generation in Muscle. The too long don't read or too long don't listen is that myofibrils are not separate parallel cables. Rather, they are highly interconnected matrices in skeletal muscles. So just picture, you know, your biomechanics textbook talking about actin and myosin, myofibrils, and rather than being these like nice parallel cables, Mm -hmm. they're actually this like crazy interconnected matrix. And it was really cool that the researchers discovered this. And they also discovered that the frequency of the sarcomere branching actually changes from throughout development. Um, And there's actually more branching in slow twitch versus fast twitch mature muscles. Um, So they're able to discover all these different things about the structure. Hmm. This idea isn't completely new, that it's actually been speculated that there is some force generation on the transverse axis of the muscle rather than just the one that's aligned with the muscle. But the precise mechanisms were unknown until recently when this group was able to do this high-resolution 3D electron microscopy, which is just fancy imaging really close up, so that they could actually see these striated muscle cells with these what they call unified nonlinear myofibrillar matrix connected across both the length and width of the cell with these branching sarcomeres. And you really just have to see the picture. It's worth the less than a thousand words that I just gave you and more than a thousand words that are in the article. But I think it's really cool to hear about this research and just have something really change from what has been our picture of these myofibrils since the 1800s. Yeah, you love research that really is able to just show the true scientific advances we've made in challenging some of the underlying like assumptions we have now or sort of the basic or foundational things that we learn. Like research is actually challenging mm-hmm. that is super exciting. And yeah, it's really fun to hear that. So thanks for sharing that. 
We are here with Sarah Schultz, who is a professor and chair of kinesiology at Seattle University. Her passion lies in understanding orthopedic complications that can prevent clinical populations from being physically active. And she's also very involved with promoting community engagement with biomechanics and exercise, and recently fostered international collaborations and internships, all during the challenges of COVID-19. So we're really excited to discuss these with you today, and thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This should be fun. And we'd like to start with talking about your beginning. So we're wondering, when did you first know that you wanted to be a biomechanic? <laughs> I didn't. I think that's the answer, is that I didn't know I wanted to be a biomechanist. Ah. I wanted to be an athletic trainer. That's right. I, I, want, I wanted to be an athletic trainer. And I knew I wanted to be an athletic trainer from about 13 or 14. I went to athletic training camps. I was an athletic trainer for our high school. I went to university on athletic training scholarships. So I, I, I did. I wanted to be an athletic trainer. And I wanted to be an athletic trainer because <laughs> I read a romance novel. And I have no problem saying this is one of my first, first novels that I really got into. I love rom-coms. I love quirky rom-coms. That's yes. where that's my my guilty pleasure, right? Um, and I'm in enough meetings that I don't I don't like to watch television, but mm -hmm. I like to read a book. I like to be in silence after my day. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I was uh, I was reading this book, and the book was about this guy who had a horrible fall and and had to go into this physical therapy, and he ended up falling right. in love with the physical therapist, as you know the book's gonna do. But it was really interesting for me to see the underlying story of how she was just really persistent. She was like, no, you're going to get better. And I just thought that that was such a cool space of being able to have such an impact on somebody's ability to move and function and, and have a life. And for me, that was a kind of an aha moment. And I went on to talk to a colleague of mine or a friend of ours, a family friend. And I said, I want to be a physical therapist. And she's like, no, you like sports too much. Go into athletic training. I looked into it and I was like, okay, I'm going to be an athletic trainer. And that started when I was about you know 13 or 14 years old. And then when I went into university, I really liked being an athletic trainer, but I wanted to have a different type of impact. I didn't want to have the impact of only really impacting a set of people. And to be also honest, I really didn't like the idea of someone dictating my hours and, and having athletes or coaches say, no, you will be here at this time because this is what I've decreed. And I really didn't like that. It chafes against my autonomous nature. So I, I thought I'd go on and get in more into the research side and be able to really impact evidence-based practice and looking at it from that point. And at that point in time, really, I mean, you can't get away from biomechanics right? Because everything about rehabilitation and about injury is based on biomechanics. It's based on that relationship between internal and external forces and what goes wrong when that balance goes off, right? And how to recover in terms of that rehabilitation. How do we get back? How do we re-strengthen and we rework into that space? And all of it's based on biomechanics. So I, I didn't really have a choice after that point. And then I realized that, in fact, actually, the things that I was passionate about were really the biomechanical aspects of my profession. And so that's how I got into it. And I'm, I would say I'm more of a clinical biomechanist than I am. I'm definitely not a biomechanical engineer. I'm not in that space. I don't do any modeling, but I love the idea of being able to impact people. And so that's why I got in, into it. And, and so I would have to say somewhere around grad school was when I realized that biomechanics was for me. You weren't able to have that meet cute from athletic training, but I'm hopefully biomechanics has still been uh, fulfilling. <laughs> That, that's exactly right. I love I love that uh, I love that reference there. Fantastic. Yes, that's exactly. But I think that it also just shows that sometimes 
sometimes we just flex, right? Sometimes we understand that what we always thought is not exactly that same space. And you use what you loved about that piece to go on and move to that next area of your life. And I think that we often get so stuck in making sure that we stick to what we were doing and and what we said we were going to do because we're embarrassed about wanting to change out of something that we get stuck in this space. And I think that there's so much more room to flex when we say, you know what, I I just changed my mind or I've moved it or I've grown and I've moved into this other space that's so much more interesting to me right now. And I think it's just really important to remember that. Yeah, it's such a good point because I feel like there is this balance of persevering and kind of feeling very motivated to keep going and grinding and trying to do what you're doing, but then also recognizing when it isn't fitting you and kind of normalizing it a little bit to say, okay, like that's okay. And you can shift to somewhere new. So we really appreciate you sharing how that's happened in your story. And now it seems like your research is more focused on clinical population. So thinking about ways to get obese children exercising, improving physical activity in women and those with osteoarthritis. And we're curious where your motivation for focusing on these specific populations came from and sort of the type of work that you're doing there now. I want to say that it was completely altruistic. I I would love (laughs) to be able to say that. And I can't. I can't say that. I, I can say that it started out very pragmatically in that it was an off, off the cuff comment that one of my instructors made in grad school about how people don't do research with children because they're hard to do research with children. You have to get multiple layers of permissions. You have to coordinate not only that person's schedule, but the parent's schedule. And it, it is, it's, it's a hard participant uh, cohort to work with. And so I thought, well, then there are not that many people doing it. So I should do that, right? And then at the time, like, the idea behind the... Nobody really says, oh, that poor athlete. We'll throw a lot of money at that poor athlete, right? Like that's a first world problem. And I really wanted to A, make more of an impact, but B, we need funding, right? That, that's what we're taught that we have to do. We have to get this funding so that we can publish our papers, so that we can get promoted, so that we can live in academia. So I just decided that I would look into children with obesity. I like working with children. They're really fun. They make data collection amusing, right? <laughs> uh, they, they're never condescending to you. They're never like... Oh, little girl, <laughs> what kind of research are you trying to do? <laughs> right? Like, so it's nice to it's nice to work with kids, and it's fun to work in that space. And and so I really got into that. And to me, I got to take the best parts. As I said, I wanted to be an athletic trainer. I got to take the best parts of what I did and really apply it to that space. Where when I was an athletic trainer, I would tell my athletes all the time, "I'm the one who's considering whether you're not you're going to be able to play." with your kids in 10, 15 years, right? Like I am the only one considering that right now. You're considering whether you can play in the game next week. I'm considering whether or not you can get in the floor and be comfortable and and have that quality of life and live. And I transitioned that desire to this population because what was really coming out in the literature was what were the heaviest energy expenditure activities? right? Let's get these kids running. Let these, let's get these kids doing these different activities. And you would see like the weight loss programs and you'd see them getting stress fractures. And you're like, I know why they're getting stress fractures. You've made them do these really heavy impact exercises. And then you just started to think like, why should physical activity be so arduous? Why does it have to be hard? And why on earth do we think that a child's going to do that? Right? I don't want to exercise when it hurts or when it's hard. Why do I think that I'm going to inspire a child to be physically active by giving them something they can't do? 
then I really did actually get into altruism and it really was about making an impact. But it was about taking that that orthopedic stance of great, they could expend that exercise, that energy if they were doing that exercise. But if they move differently, are they going to do that exercise? And if they don't, then it doesn't matter that that's what expends the most energy. It matters whether they're going to do it. And so you need to start to look at, at things from that perspective. And that's really where I got into, into that motion. And then I moved in with, um, I had some opportunities to work with some projects looking at women's physical activity, because it is different than uh, men's activity levels and, and what they're interested in doing and where they're willing to be physically active. And so I got into understanding that a little bit more. And then the osteoarthritic population really got into that because of my weight management space and just understanding again, that that's where it ultimately leads to if you're not, if you're not being really careful with it. It's cool how you see that whole pipeline, almost like back to when you're in your athletic training days, looking down the road, you're kind of at both ends of that spectrum. And I I would say it's all altruistic. Like I think that in science, you have to usually find a niche, but then you're able to like, that's usually where you're able to make impact. And so I'm just, we're just wondering, like having done all this research on the different ways that obesity affects mobility in children and kind of seeing that later on play out and knowing all of the biomechanics underlying these mechanisms, like your papers talk about differences in strength, muscle activity, joint alignment between obese and healthy weight children. What are sort of the important next steps from these learnings? How can you apply what you've learned to actually help inform changes that need to be made for these populations. Well, I think one of the important things is to know that we don't know that much about the mechanisms. We know that these differences exist, but we don't know how they work out in the body very well with these children, particularly when we start to think about things like balance or poor balance. Is it actually that they have poor static static or dynamic balance, or is it that they perceive themselves to not be particularly stable, right? Is that perception then why we're seeing changes in their spatiotemporal parameters? Or is it actually because there is a mechanism, a mechanical or a physical mechanism or a neuromuscular mechanism that's driving that space? And so we don't actually know as much about the mechanisms because we've spent a lot of time doing comparing and contrasting. And so I think that there's there's really still some, some information there. I don't know how deep we're gonna be able to go to really understand because it's so individualized, right? Obesity is a multifactorial problem and it is very individualized just as anybody's health is, right? My health is is very different from your health. So we don't see that in that same space. But I think the next thing to do is to really understand, well, we know these things exist. So how can we create really intuitive physical activity interventions? And I'm not talking about an intervention where I'm going to require 15 kids to come into a gym and work out with me for three months. And then I'm going to be like, hey, 12 year old, I've just now given you all the tools you need to go out and do this when you don't have access to the equipment and you don't have access to what you need to be doing. And then I want to see how you do without having any of that. Oh, you didn't do physical activity? Huh, that's surprising, right? So I want to make sure that we get back to this opportunity of really understanding what is motivating children to be physically active. What are those differences in how they move and how is that going to impact their willingness to be active. And I think that that's that next space that you need to get into is starting to just throw things at the wall and see what sticks and understanding understanding that space. And a lot of people are doing some really good work in there. I just like to see it take on a little bit more of that orthopedic biomechanic flavor to it, because I think it's really important that we're able to understand that moving differently will impact your physical activity. Mm. Can, can you talk about that a little bit more? Like, what are some of the ways you could imagine that moving differently or in what ways 
Can they move differently that would impact their physical activity? Is there something that you're particularly excited about testing or yeah, something that that really stands out? Sure. I think that we take a step back and we just think about activity in, in general, right? I run track. I play tennis. I do not go near soccer. My kids love it. And I find it really hard to play with them because I don't do well with eye-foot coordination, right? I'm not moving well in that space. So I don't tend to go towards that space right? Those are not activities that I am going to move towards because I don't move well in them, right? I don't perform well in them. I don't move well in them. And again, I think that to believe that a child's going to do it just because you said so is not a great space for them to be in. So I think that when we're starting to look at different activities, I think just encouraging play, I think bikes, are an excellent thing, riding bikes, right? Because again, you're more non-weight-bearing in that space. And so being able to go out and, and ride bikes is a great opportunity. Just getting out to walk is a great opportunity in that space. Getting, if they're interested in martial arts, that's a wonderful opportunity to get active, right? So figuring out what it is that they like to do. And we know that some of those things work better than others. We did some boxing with uh, a boxing intervention with some males in New Zealand, some youth, and they really loved it. And we'd love to see something on a bigger scale in that space. I've always wanted to do water polo because I think that uh, like a shallow water, water polo over in New Zealand, Australia, they call it flipper ball. And it's this, but it's an opportunity, right? To be in the water. And, And I don't know if you've ever played like a random game. I never played like organized water polo, but if you've ever been in a pool where all of a sudden you start to play like a simulation of a water polo game, that's a lot of fun. And you don't realize how out of breath you're getting until you are out of, and then you're all of a sudden you're like, oh, I really, <laughs> I'm really tired from playing, you know, 20 minutes of this game. And so I think that there are, there are opportunities there where there's resistance, but there's a non-weight bearing, there's a buoyancy component to it. There's some eye-hand coordination opportunities. I think that in some cases, you need to be willing and able to vary expectation levels. And I think that part of it is you go, should we be segregating these children that already think of themselves as being different. But simultaneously, if you put them into team space, then the kids who are more athletically inclined tend to take over as alphas. And so then they don't play is essentially what happens. So I think we need to start thinking about more community-based work as well. Getting things with families involved. Family is so important. So getting things that are, are family involved, getting them out there. So where they're not competing and to be fair, not working in a team at that point in time, because it is going to allow them to hide more. So I think all of those really come into play, which is not really biomechanically related. It's more socially related. But as I said, it's such a multifactorial project. And I've worked interdisciplinary for so long that it, my piece is only one small one small part of that, that um, algorithm. I think both Melissa and I super appreciate that holistic approach and like making it interdisciplinary and acknowledging all those different pieces. Because at the end of the day, I feel like we're all human, right? We all sort of need all of those pieces. And it's funny that you talk about this, like just doing activity that they like, because I work with people toward the other end of the age spectrum, people with Parkinson's disease and like neurologists that they work with. The biggest recommendation is just find something, some kind of exercise you like and just do that. Like you're saying, even if it's just walking or something. Um, So it's really amazing how universal, right, this concept is and how simple it is, but how powerful it can be. Again, we don't do things that we don't like to do, right? 
I don't eat mushrooms because I don't like mushrooms. And so nobody in my house eats mushrooms because I'm the cook and I don't buy them and I don't cook them. And so we don't eat them, right? Well, it's the same thing with exercise. It's the same thing with work, right? You talked earlier about grinding, right? Grinding it out. If you're always grinding, then that may not be the work for you, right? Like if you're not loving it, why are we doing it? right? If you're not enjoying yourself, you'll see it as a task, as an errand, and you won't see it as a pleasure. And it's only when we get to the point where it's a pleasure that we think, I want to do that. I want to do that whenever I can. I think that's an important place for us to get in a lot of different spaces. And I think it just helps us be happier and healthier. Yeah, you're totally speaking our language. I'm, I'm working on an intervention right now to try to change mindsets about exercise in people with osteoarthritis to give ideas on how to make it more fun and enjoyable and, and also finding ways that you're already getting exercise in your life that you might not be aware of. So like going shopping or cooking, like turning on a song and dancing in the kitchen while you're cooking, like things like that, that you realize all the ways that you actually are moving and how important that is in your life. Sometimes I feel like that recognition too kind of makes you realize like, oh yeah, I am already doing things. And like, there are some other additional things that I could do that I might also enjoy and will make yeah me that much healthier or add to my life. I'm curious too, when you're talking about the different populations you've worked with and thinking about women's health, and recently you had a paper comparing different sedentary behaviors and what these behaviors effects are on women's health. And I'm curious, I guess, maybe the similarities or differences and you know what you're seeing in terms of women's health versus what we've been talking about um, in children, um, but then also maybe how it's different than men's health and sedentary behaviors in men too, and why it's important to, to study women in particular. Well, I think that it, it continues to reiterate some of those spaces again, though, of similar to the children, you want to find things that, that people enjoy. And what we found in that study in particular, because it was, it was one of the PhD students that I was supervising, and her work was across women in physical activity, in particular ethnicities relevant to New Zealand. And so in that particular article, we're talking about New Zealand Europeans, which are, they call Pakeha, which is Caucasian, then the Maori, which is the indigenous population, Pacific Island populations. And what you realized was, is it comes down to culture a lot, right? So what we found in that study was that the white women were going to go to the gym and they were going to run on a treadmill and they were going to lift some weights and they were going to take a class at the gym. And that's what they were going to do. And the Maori Pacific Islanders did a lot more community-based or team-based exercise. So dance is a big part of the Pacific Island and the Maori culture. And you saw that in their preferences, in the music, in the dance, some of that traditional dance that they were doing. So, so they were really getting into that community and the culture in that space. Netball came up quite a bit football, which is their soccer, came up quite a bit. So they are very New Zealand, Commonwealth specific sports and very common in their cultures. And so that's what you were seeing was that there were these cultural differences. And I think that that's really important to think about. I think that's in children. I think that's in, in adults. What has always concerned me is that Things like the ACSM, when we're talking about testing and we're talking about the exercise guidelines, right? We're talking about primarily Caucasian males, right? Healthy Caucasian males, 18 to 55. We get into that space. And what you find with this is that women are going to want to do different things and they are then going to want to do different things by culture. And I think that when we are researchers and we are researchers of a culture, we go, well, this would be a really fun thing to do. And then you go, why is my entire cohort white? 
And that's because I am white and the exercises that I put forward were ones that would interest me. And so they interest people from a similar cultural or sim- uh, culture or similar background. And I think that that's one of those things that we have to be really careful with is making sure that we are diversifying not only the work that we're doing, but who we're doing it with. And I think that one of the other things that really that I learned in New Zealand is this idea of building relationships and building trust and building that understanding. As a researcher, you cannot go into communities that you do not belong to and think that you can make things better because you will make things worse. <laughs> and, and that's part of that experience and understanding that space. And it's about communicating. It's about forming relationships, really intentional, worthwhile relationships with people of diverse backgrounds and understanding where they come from and what they need, not what you think they need, but what do they need? And then being willing and able to work within the parameters they set for you, which is really hard as researchers because we want to do research the way that we want to do research. But it's really important that when you're starting to look at, if you're wanting to make an impact on at the community level, you really need to be speaking to the community that you're wanting to impact. And and that's what we really found in that research. I think it's fairly intuitive, but it's good to see that that information is out there and, and understanding that we do need to make those strides. Echo that and appreciate that perspective and you sharing that. And I think this note about doing research with people who look like you or doing things because it's the way you do it can, you know, like you're saying, like diversifying not only the populations you're working with, but also maybe the research teams you're working with. And we were really excited to connect with you through Felipe Carpez with regards to your work fostering international collaboration and internships, especially in this era where um, we feel a little bit more isolated with quarantining and things like that. So we really appreciate your work in trying to you know, start initiatives like that. And we're just wondering if you could tell us more what this looked like and how those relationships and experiences played out. Sure. Well, I think that one of the things that's a little bit different about my background and my experiences is that right after my PhD, I left and did a postdoc in Australia. And then I came back for a little bit. And then I went back to New Zealand. I was like, I'm good. I'm gonna stay over there for a while. And I think that What it really changed was my perspective on how you need to do research, right? Up until I went on my postdoc, I had been indoctrinated in American academia. And I believed everything that that everyone worked the way that the United States works and believes in, in sort of those same spaces and those things. And then I went abroad and was like, oh, you do things differently. I'm just curious what like stands out the most or yeah, what are some examples of that? So one of the examples is they pay postdocs really well. Oh, well, Ooh. yeah, that is different. <laughs> yeah. So so that's so postdocs are not seen as an extension of a PhD there. They are seen as an opportunity to to work on research for a few years. What you can see happen is that somebody has gotten a PhD, they've taken an instructor position, they haven't had a chance to work on their on their research. So they they go and they take a postdoc for a couple of years to step back from teaching so that they can get research done. And so they get paid at instructor levels. So that's a step one is that it's not seen as as you need to do more training and you need to continue to be under someone's thumb. It's it's an opportunity to do research and to be seen as an expert. So there's that first one. The second to it was they work for 12 months. It's not based on when the kids are in school. So or when students are in school. So first then it does look like you you get paid well, right? So so that's another step, right? It always comes back to being paid, but I think that that's a big part to the academic process over here is that 
it's a it's trial by fire, right? Like you have to, you got to go through these really hard knocks. And the answer is you don't. To be successful, have to go through these really hard hurdles and you don't have to jump through these spaces. The other thing is tenure and they don't do tenure over there. So when I got to New Zealand, I had a six month probationary period and then I was on a permanent position and it allowed me to grow in the spaces that I wanted to grow in, to do work that I was interested in. And it allowed me really to be very interdisciplinary and to be very collaborative from the beginning. And I think that in some cases, the American academic system really emphasizes silos, not only within a department, but within a lab space. And I think that I think there's a lot of repetition that doesn't need to be there. And I think that there's a lot of sharing that does need to be there and and isn't. And I think that there is, uh, I do, I think that there's a a level of stress that I felt from my American colleagues, but I never felt as a person working in a different system. So I think that for all of those reasons, I saw a very different space between how things were being done in other areas. And it was really eye-opening in that space. So I was always just more interested in working with international collaborators anyway, because you do get this diverse perspective. You get this opportunity to show students that it's done differently in other places, and that's okay. It is perfectly acceptable for things to be done in a different way than we do them, than I would personally do them. Right. And I think that that's something that really needs to be learned within our students and our populations. So uh, when we got into an opportunity to have to think differently, we had to pivot a lot with this last year and with the campus being closed. And one of the biggest changes for our students was losing their hands on clinical experience. We have 10 credits, which is 300 hours of clinical placement our seniors get in our kinesiology program. And it's one of the highlights. It's one of the positives of our, a lot of positives about our program, but it's one of the things our students like the most. When you say clinical experience, is that like going and working with orthopedic surgeons? Is that working with physical therapists? Like what type of experiences is that? Yeah. So it's all of those. It's working in, typically we've got a lot that go into physical therapy clinics or occupational therapy clinics because quite a few of our students want to go into that space. We work with hospitals. We've had some find their own working with, um, one one did emergency was EMT. So he was an emergency medical technician and, and did his hours that way. We've had a couple that do them with research. We've got a couple that go into our own lab, but also in labs over at University of Washington, things like that. We've had opportunities across the board, just depending on what the interest is of the student at that point in time. We have some with strength and conditioning. That's another big area where we send students. So yeah, so we couldn't do any of it. Right? Like, <laughs> we, we had nothing for that. And so we decided in the springtime, we had to do something completely different. And then after the spring one, I thought, I still don't like this very much. And we were going to have to be doing it for a longer period of time. And the problem is, is that generally our students take five credits at a time. So we couldn't run it as a class twice. They'd be taking the same class twice. And that didn't work either. We came up with this idea that I just said, well, why don't we, why don't we get virtual internships set up? Why don't we find people who have work? As a professor, I have data sets just sitting around collecting dust, right? I haven't been able to get to them. They're low priority because I've got other things that, that need to be pushed through, but it'd be interesting to get them out. And I thought, well, I'm not, I'm definitely not the only person that has that happening. And so we put it out there to the Twitterverse mostly and said, hey, who's interested in helping in this space? Do you have something that my students, my highly capable students can work on? And we were able to get them into a lot of different spaces. Uh, I made sure that it wasn't just biomechanics. I've got a lot of connections there, but I've got connections 
positions in other spaces. And we were able to get our interns working with people in Brazil, with Felipe, with colleagues in Belgium, with colleagues in Australia and New Zealand and Japan, and then across the United States and in different organizations. So we've had them working with different membership organizations. So they've worked with the Osteoarthritis Action Alliance, which I'm very active with. They worked with the NATA's uh, Research Foundation, uh, took on one of our, our students. So we've had these opportunities to work in those spaces. And our students then say, yeah, we're really interested in doing some research in that space. And, and we're able to move forward with working with that. So we've we've had some real success in that space. And I think we'll keep a couple of those options open for students who do want a bit more of that flexible schedule, who have more of an interest in that space. But we'll see. It has worked out really well, though, for this last year. Yeah, it's amazing how it seems like how much engagement you got from just sending out a note and asking. And I feel like that just speaks volumes for the community where you just kind of put it out there. And the things that can come from that are pretty outstanding. And I'm curious what so Obviously, doing a collaboration virtually is different than what would happen in person. Maybe you'll have different learnings. And I'm curious maybe what some of your main learnings are in terms of like best practices for these types of collaborations, international collaborations virtually, and maybe how that might differ or be similar to something that would happen in person. Yeah, so right now, um, in a couple of different spaces, so even when we're in person, I collaborate quite strongly with some colleagues over in Australia, and we're looking in that space to be able to collect data in both her area and my area. So as long as you have the data to collect, uh, or the 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 data collection equipment to collect similarly, then we do that in those two spaces and, and we can share that way. And we did something similar when I was running New Zealand National Biomechanics Day. We did something similar there called our big experiment. And our big experiment was working across. So our National Biomechanics Day in New Zealand, when we founded it, we founded it again to be very collaborative and very communicative. It was seven of the national universities. So seven out of the eight national universities participated. The eighth one simply didn't have biomechanics. So there was no reason to have them involved. And we all worked together building up to that space. We had government funding for it. And we had this opportunity to work in that area. And we thought, you know, we're doing all of this work for an outreach program, which is fantastic. And we were all really engaged in that. But wouldn't it be really nice as researchers if we could get an output for that that space. And so we decided to try this big experiment, which was, let's see if we can all collect some really simple measures across that time. And we're going to collect it on a lot of kids at one time. And then let's see if we can do anything with this data and, and see what happens. And so that's what we did. We worked with Dr. Robin Queen out of Virginia Tech and worked in that space. And we're really excited about being able to collect a lot of data in one day. And it just goes to show that if you're willing, again, if you're willing to look at things and go, that's not exactly how I would have done it, but it's still okay, then you can get really big data sets really fast. Right. So we're doing the same thing. One of my honor students, again, we started an honors program in our department. Uh, she is our first honor student and we can't have her collecting data with humans because of the campus restrictions. We, I said, fine, we're collecting data sets. You're interested in this thing. We're going to collect data sets. And in fact, the project is now so much more impactful than she probably could have done if she was collecting data. But again, we put it out to the Twitterverse. We put it out to, I made some personal calls to different people that I knew and tried to spread the word that way. And I talked to her this morning. She has over 4,000 samples 
for her honors project on regional body composition. It's DEXA data sets and she has DEXA data for 4,000 participants across, I want to say nine or 10 countries at the moment. And all just because we said, you know what? We're going to get some data, like we'll put together a survey that gives us some details so we know where the differences are in the data. But the fact is, is that at 4,000, if it's a little bit different, it'll come out in the wash. So how specific do we need it when we can get it in really large numbers? And that to us was a more important piece to that puzzle. And I think that that's really where we need to go more and more. We're giving a talk at the ASB. We've got a symposium with Rumit Singh and Robin Queen and Michael Hunt. And I are doing one called uh, Teamwork Makes the Dream Work, right? So this idea of data sharing repositories and this concept of if I collect 10 people's data, which is really high user burden data for me, then... I can put it up and I can get access to 200 people's data. So if I share 10 people's and 19 other people share 10 people, then I've got 200 people's data, which is incredible. It's it's a much more efficient way of collecting data. Uh, And especially for individuals who can't collect a lot of data, who don't have the equipment to collect a lot of data, who maybe are in a more rural a rural uh, university or setting and don't have access to huge cohorts. Right? This is a great opportunity for, them, for people to be able to explore the research and get better understanding of what's happening by just sharing. And, and being more in that space. Uh, so that's what we're doing really about across those different barriers and trying to figure out how we can just work smarter together. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, we come from a lab of lots of open science and I think Melissa and I are super excited to hear about your passion for doing that and thinking of ways to yeah capitalize on some of these opportunities and share and get bigger sample sizes. And I'm wondering, earlier we talked about the importance of maybe how different people are different. <laughs> And like there may be some personal factors that we need to consider. So I'm wondering how you weigh sort of needing to understand more individual differences versus looking at sort of really large samples where like maybe some of those get washed out, as you're saying, or differences in data collection get washed out. I think that in that case, a lot of it is going to be, I think it's the question that you're trying to ask. I think that if you're looking at something from a rehabilitation standpoint, and it is part of somebody's rehab or recovery from a surgery or something like that, I worked, I've got great colleagues out of the hospital for special surgery in New York City. And a lot of what they are doing is working with orthopedic surgeons and doing pre post information and understanding that at a very singular level. And that makes total sense to me. I think that when you're trying to make a larger impact, and you're looking towards more of that community space, I think that you're looking to find out what are those big overarching high level similarities or differences that you can use as that foundation. And then once you have that foundation of people generally don't like this or people generally like this, then you start there with the understanding that you will flex, that people will need to flex, that individuals will need to be individual. But if you can at least start being guided in the right direction, right, versus if you were trying to make that decision off of a sample size of 20, then you really have a lot of noise from all of those independent and very individual data points. Because again, everybody is different. When you get to those larger data sets, now we're able to to block out some of that noise to see general themes. And I think those general themes are excellent places to start from. Yeah, it makes me think of this kind of difference, but relationship between like hypothesis generating questions and experiments and analyses versus then narrowing down once you have those hypotheses that have been kind of more exploratory, then how do you like test them more rigorously? And um, the balance between that is 
uh, yeah, really exciting. And I think will drive a lot of interesting future research. So we just have a couple questions for you left. So one of our favorite questions to ask um, is, was there ever a time in your career that you felt like you had failed? And what did you learn from that experience? I'm going to tell you, because y'all were so nice to send all of the questions ahead of time. Uh, and I will say that I got to that question. and I was like, I don't like this question. And I don't like this question for a reason. I teach my students about tissues response to stress, right? That stress strain curve. And so you get to that yield point where we're moving from elastic energy to the plastic and we've got that deformation. What happens when we get to the failure point? When we get to failure point, what do we say? We say that the system is broken, right? There's there's really no return from that. If a tissue fails, if an ACL fails, then it's no longer an ACL. It is no longer going to support that rotational and that rotary stability. And so I don't like the word failure. And it's not because I don't like to fail. It's that I don't think it's the right word. I think that there have been very few times where the system has fully broken for me, right? There are very few times that I can't flex and adjust. And that's not to say I haven't lost. And that's not to say that I haven't made huge mistakes. But it is to say that I think that we've gotten a little bit trendy with this idea of having to overcome failure, right? As this part of this growth cycle. And I don't think it's about overcoming failure. I think it's about our ability to flex and be resilient when we make mistakes. And I see that as being very important changes in that because failure's got this huge negative connotation. And I think that we get into these places where people risk adverse because of the word failure, right? Because they don't want to fail with into this very risk adverse space, where if we just say mistakes are acceptable, as long as we're able to flex from those mistakes, as long as we're able to adjust, to me that allows, and I have very low risk adversity. (laughs) I take a lot of risk. I've moved countries multiple times. I see nothing as being permanent, right? Everything can be changed. Why not try it? We'll try it and we'll see if it works. And if it doesn't work, then we'll change and we'll do something different. And so for me, that's more important than trying to I just don't think the system breaks very often is my answer. And I know that that's probably not the answer that you were looking for. But to me, that's there's a big difference there in mistakes versus failure. Yeah, we really appreciate that answer and that perspective. I'm curious how you keep that resiliency up. Like, have you always been that way? Or, you know, are there times where you feel like your resilience is lower, you know, than others? Yeah, I've always been really resilient, really persistent. Just it's ingrained in my personality. I think it's part of my confidence. (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, of course, there are times where it's lower, where like I had a week of rejection, where I got three different types of rejection, all in the span of like 72 hours. And I was like, why do I do this? Right? Why do I write grants? Why do I do these things that I know I have such a low probability of getting? Right? Why am I doing why am I doing all of these things that take so much of my time and my energy only to be slapped back for it? Right. And often for those really frustrating spaces that I was talking about earlier, where just because somebody would do it differently, right? This is what I hate about reviewing things, reviewing manuscripts, reviewing grants, is this idea that like it's wrong because it's not how I would have done it. And I go, well, that's not. It's not really your job as a reviewer. You're not a co-author, right? You're not a co-investigator on the project. You're here to say, did the science answer the question? If the science answers the question, then it doesn't matter if it's the way you would have done it or not. It should go forward, right? And so this is what I have an issue with the reviewing on that space. So yeah, so of course there are times where the resiliency is lower, but I think in the end... I know myself really well, and I think that that's something that comes more naturally to certain people than others. But I I know what I need, 
and I know what I don't need. And I know when it's important to take something on and adjust how I'm doing something. And sometimes it's important to say, you know what, we're going to agree to disagree on that. And we're just gonna, we're going to move on it. And I think that that's really helped with understanding when to be resilient. Yeah, I I really appreciate that kind of using your values as a guide to think about like, is this worth, you know, the emotional or mental energy that I might spend, you know, worrying about this or trying to change this and letting you then put your energy towards things that you know will be beneficial and and move you in the direction that you want to go. So that's really great. And I also wanted to just give a a brief uh, mention to you talked about your podcast, Red Hawk Squawk. Um, And I was wondering if you could share where people can listen to that podcast and then also how people can learn more about you and all of the amazing work that you've shared today. Oh, thanks. Uh, Yeah, so we have our kinesiology department at Seattle University started a podcast at the beginning of the year. It's called Red Hawk Squawk, uh, Exercise for Life. And we bring on different guests from different disciplines to talk about different ways that the research translates into everyday life. So we have had conversations on race and sport. We have had conversations on bra health, right? So we, we had the amazing Julie Steele come on and talk about bra health and finding a bra that works for you for breast cancer awareness month we've talked about sleep around times of the daylight savings so we had these fantastic people come in we've talked to veterans we've talked to nutrition and dietetics uh individuals so we've we've had some great great guest speakers we're having one this week on sports sustainability so understanding how we can be better for the environment within sports so that's awesome and uh we can be found either at our website or so it's archived on our website and then it's also on podbean and so you can just search red hawk squawk at pod on the podbean podcast platform just to find out more about me just email me I am more than happy to talk to and to talk to anybody who who wants to find out more. I don't feel like I shared much about my work today, and I did more of my soapbox stances than I did work. You got a lot of my opinions, <laughs> less about my, the facts that I've endured as a uh, researcher. Well, you know, the facts are always out there. The facts are there for people to research, and you know, it's the, the opinions is the real juicy stuff that we like to get into. So we appreciate your openness to sharing those. They may not always be popular, but they are mine. <laughs> that's good. Well, yeah, that's you what's important. <laughs> yeah, so as our final question, what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? Yeah, I, I think it comes back to the sharing concept. I think it comes back to understanding that you don't have to go it alone. Right. And this, I think, comes back to my issue with tenure. We come back, it always comes back to my issue with tenure. We're told we have to prove ourselves. Uh, but I think that we forget that that story can be that we've proved ourselves by being this dynamic, collaborative person who has been able to expand the reach of their work by working with others. And I think that that's such a crucial piece to that puzzle is understanding that sometimes it's important to be really strategic. And sometimes that strategy needs to be what kind of impact are you having beyond your peers, right? Like what kind of impact beyond the feedback or the opinion of your peers are are you looking for? And I think that the sharing, I think that there's, there's an awesome opportunity. I think we're doing it a lot more on the coding side already, where people share a lot of their codes, they start to share some data sets that could be used in that space. And I think that there's some real opportunities to expand that more into that clinical space. And so we can just we can just look at things on such a broader scale. And I think that I'm really, I'm really excited to see what we can do in that space. 
Well, thank you. We're really excited about that too. And we're like, I think you live and breathe that yourself. And it's really inspiring to hear your passion and enthusiasm for that. So thank you for sharing that and all of your stories too. Well, again, this was so much fun. I'm glad I was able to come on and, you know, just talk. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's a, it's a hobby of mine talking. (laughs) So this this was a, this is a great way to spend my Tuesday morning. I appreciate y'all having me on. Yeah, thank you. We hope we'll talk uh, talk to you sometime soon. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Thanks. For our fail, as we noted earlier in this episode, we had to redo this a bunch of times. But as I was thinking about what the fail should be, I found actually an article on LinkedIn about 21 common reasons that leaders fail. And some of the top reasons are that they don't communicate, they don't listen, or they fail to build relationships. And I think those are things that we really try to focus on sharing, you know, examples of people actually doing those things as leaders and as experts on Boom. And it's something that we all need reminders of, because even as a Boom team, we've integrated with a new member, my sister, Margaret, who runs our Instagram. And we learned that very quickly, we even had to learn how to communicate with a new person. We had a small failure in accidentally releasing an episode too early because of some language that we had used on, you know, our posting schedule and for our social media. And so that was a fail for us. But I think, again, a learning thing and it helps us grow and expand and it's helping us to grow boom. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like these are good failures to have because it means that we are growing and good things are happening. So trying to reframe it like that is always helpful. But and I know that we really appreciate Margaret and are happy to have her as part of the team too. So shout out to Margaret. So big thank you to Margaret and a big (laughs) thank you to you for listening. And thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics for all of their support. A big thanks to Peter Washington for providing all the music. And if you'd like to submit a research fail yourself, someone you'd like us to talk to, if you want to get involved, uh, feel free to email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail. Or you can follow us on Twitter at biomechanicsoom or Instagram and Facebook at biomechanicsonourminds. All right, we're Hannah. We're not (laughs) Hannah. You are Hannah. (laughs) I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. Biomechanics Biomechanics off off our our minds. minds.